and welcome to another episode of Much Language, Dutch Talk. In this episode, you will be listening to me, Brittany, and the wonderful Vittoria. Hello, Vittoria. Hi there. We are joined by... Ludovica Serotrice. Who is a professor of bi- and multilingualism at the University of Reading and was the director for the Center of Literacy and Multilingualism for three years. She's also a co-investigator on a project as part of the ESRC, Economic and Social Research Council, International Center for Language and Communication Development, LUCID. Professor Sertrice did her PhD in the linguistics department here at the University of Edinburgh, the same department in which many of our volunteers on the podcast currently study, including myself. She's also a member of the Reading branch of Bilingualism Matters. Welcome. Thank you very much, Brittany and Victoria. I'm really pleased to be here and to be a guest at Bilingualism Matters. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for accepting our invitation. So our first question, just quite generally, is how did you develop your interest in languages and linguistics? Hmm. Actually, my interest in language, maybe not linguistics, but in languages sort of stuff when I was really young, I've got a younger sister. And I remember that we were, even before going to school, we were pretending to speak in other languages. And I don't know what we were actually saying, um, gibberish probably, but we were pretending we were speaking another language. So we always had a fascination for languages. And then I guess I started, I was very lucky. I had a fantastic language teachers at school. So in Italy, where I was brought up, uh, you start, eight, well, in my time anyway, I think now children go, you know, get um, language lessons, foreign language lessons in primary school. But when I was young, uh, that didn't happen. It happened in middle school when you're about, you know, 11 or 12. So, and I had fantastic teachers, you know, both in, in middle school and high school that really ignited a passion for language. And, um, and then linguistics, I'd probably say I spent a year in, in Glasgow, actually, in, in Scotland, not Edinburgh, but Glasgow. Um, I was a language assistant in three secondary schools. And while I spent um, a year in Glasgow at the time, it was 1992, um, I got to know a lot of people that were doing masters and PhDs. So I looked into the possibility of doing something with languages, because at the time was I was at university, but I was already working as a simultaneous interpreter. So I trained as an interpreter oh. first, and then I did a degree in English and French language and literature. But that really sort of got me thinking, thinking maybe I can do a master's, maybe I can do something a bit more academic rather than vocational. So, so that's how it all went down. I went to the University of Essex for a master's and then I ended up in Edinburgh for a PhD and I haven't looked back since really. Wow. So always sort of the language context. If you said you were doing um, interpretation, yes, before linguistics. Yeah. Really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So I wanted to, yeah, like I said, you know, I was always, I started coming, I should say England, not Scotland, but when I was like 12, 13, you know, during the summer. So I, I really developed an interest for that. And then I started doing French and German when I was in uh, in secondary school, because in my secondary school, I could only do one foreign language and that was English. Then I started doing French and, and, and German. And then I yeah, after school, I trained as an interpreter for three years and then I went to university to do a degree. But I think it was really that year out in Glasgow that sparked my interest in more the linguistic side of things. So obviously, I had always been involved in the language side of things, but the linguistic side of things and particularly language acquisition and language development. That's, that's what I did at Essex and of course then at Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. So that's um, actually very nicely transitions into my next question about this being something that you've done quite a lot of research on the uh, language development in children and adults and how they might acquire languages. So what would you say is the biggest difference between a child and an adult trying to learn an additional language? OK, so the way you pose the question makes me think that you're talking more about sort of language learning as in a potentially a second language learning environment as opposed to a child growing up with two languages. Am I correct? Um, oh, interesting juxtaposition. Yes. If you'd like to answer both, that would be very cool. So the original question is indeed uh, the latter. So the first instance of trying to learn an additional language rather than learning two languages um, when you're younger. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, the obvious sort of difference is that as an adult, you know, coming to a second language, you already have a well-established first language. Mm-hmm. Um, clearly, in addition to that, you know, you know about the world, you know a lot of stuff uh, that you don't have to learn as a child. So a child learning a second language is not only learning another language when the first language may or may not be well-established yet, and they may also have, you know, less awareness of about language, what we call metalinguistic awareness. 
which is something that also helps you out as a second language learner with a very explicit strategy. So, for example, as a second language learner, say if you're a speaker of, I don't know, Italian, for example, you know that name nouns can have a feminine and a masculine gender. If you're learning a language right. like Spanish or French that also have feminine and masculine gender, you're acute to that. You will, you'll be thinking about it when you're learning, you know, in an explicit way. So children clearly may have less of these strategies available to them, A, mm-hmm. because they know less about the first language potentially, and B, because they may have less of this explicit knowledge. At the same time, there is a little bit this idea that young children learn languages like sponges, um, yeah. which is a little bit of a myth in some respect, um, mm-hmm. because actually um, starting younger, so there have been studies that have looked again at the age effect in learning a second language. So clearly sort of when you come to it as an adult, there are many things um, that are harder. And, you know, there are people talk about, they used to talk about a critical period. Now they talk more about a sensitive period, like a window of opportunity when um, learning a language may be more or less easy. And one of the things you will probably listen to me and you will immediately know that I'm not, you know, that English is not my first language, so to speak, right? So you can detect uh, an accent, if you like. Maybe you can't immediately say that it's an Italian accent, but certainly you can say, you can here that the English is not my first language. So really sort of there are windows of opportunity whereby sort of learning certain aspects of language as a child is easier. Um, for example, phonology, um, you know, you can tell immediately, although my syntax, my morphology, my pragmatics, I hope are pretty okay. My phonology is not that of a person who only speaks English, okay? It's good enough that you can understand what I'm saying and I, you know, I'm not making a fool of myself, but you can immediately tell that English is not my first language. So clearly sort of for, for that aspect of language learning, you know, starting younger is better. But there are other aspects. Like, for example, you know, syntax and morphology or aspects when you're learning a language in explicit ways where you can learn a lot more knowledge faster when you're a little bit older. Okay, when this Mm -hmm. kind of metalinguistic awareness kicks in, when this explicit teaching kicks in, actually, uh, in classroom instructor situation, it's better to be a little bit older. Than, than, than young. If you, you know, it's easier if you start, you know, maybe when you're in your teens than when you're six. In that mm-hmm. So when you say um, explicit instruction, are you meaning like classroom setting where you've got, you're sitting a teacher and they're saying, here's how this language works. Here's some vocabulary. Yeah. When you're told pretty, you know, explicitly, you know, for example, that, you know, you need uh, a verb after a noun that you need, you know, the mm-hmm. adjective in, in English goes before a noun. And in Italian, it goes after or now most of the time. So things like that. They're kind of very explicit, very strategic and very aware kind of instruction. It is easier for an adult or some, you know, an older child to take this in than for younger children. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this is it's quite different if you're talking about, say, for example, growing up with two languages as a simultaneous bilingual or as an early bilingual where you're exposed to two languages in a naturalistic environment, right? Because one of mm-hmm. your parents speaks a language that is not the language of the community or a different language from, from your other parent. So in that case, it's, it, the situation is quite different because you don't have this kind of, you know, parents don't teach language to their children in the same way that right. they teach these languages to, to their pupils in the classroom. Yes, yes. And has there been any research or do you know of any research around trying to teach adults in the way that, children learn, like you've just described, where you have, you're just sort of surrounded or immersed in this, the language. Does that work? Uh, well, more than, than the experiments, you know, there are people that do learn language like that. Hmm. Oh, true. <laughs> you know, um, refugees or immigrants. There is a lot of work that was done, I typically like, you know, in the late 80s about what was called the learner variety of people that would come to a country, specifically this was done in Germany, where they just learn naturalistically, okay? So mm-hmm. clearly sort of you're learning and depending on the context in which you're in, your learning is functional to what you need. A lot of these, right. you know, adult learners fossilized very early because maybe they were not literate in the language, so they had basic communication skills. Uh, and then, of course, especially in the, in the case of adult learners, literacy is a big gateway to language development because the minute you can learn not only can you learn to read the language, but you can learn about the language. So there is also, again, like a metalinguistic function of literacy in language development and language learning for adults that is not accessible to people that may be just purely immersed in a naturalistic environment with uh, much 
um, help in in more explicit strategic way. Yeah. Oh, that's what, I mean, very good points. Very interesting. I hadn't, I don't think I had thought about it in that way, like that reading, you can then go to say the library and pick up a book or look online and there's all these other resources that might be available. Whereas a child can't read yet, most likely in their first language, much less any additional sort of language. Right. Okay. Very interesting. So our next question, you have a recent paper that was published called A Cross-Cultural Analysis of Early Prelinguistic Gesture Development and Its Relationship to Language Development. Can you tell us a bit more about gestures in early childhood? Okay. So this is, was a study in collaboration with colleagues at the Lucid Research Center, Sophia Cameron Faulkner is the lead author on this paper. And what we did was looking at the relationship between early gestures, and I'm talking about diet gestures, so gestures that are used to identify a referent, and specifically pointing is one of those. Right. Um, and then we also had hold out and uh, give and reach gestures. Okay, I'm going to maybe say a little bit more about those in a minute. Um, but the, what we looked at in, in three different communities, um, all Manchester-based communities, Bengali-speaking community, Chinese Mandarin and Cantonese-speaking community and uh, English-speaking community, because we wanted to see there is a little bit of, I wouldn't say controversy, but there are some mixed findings in the literature in the extent to which there may be cross-cultural differences in uh, the use of gesture, okay? So um, pointing gesture, like I said, they're like a really big milestone, right? I don't know if parents pay as much attention to the emergence of pointing gestures as they do to the emergence of early words or the first word that the child said, but pointing is a really, really important milestone in communicative development because essentially what pointing does is really joint attention, okay? So to try to draw attention of the person that you're pointing for to something that you want to talk about and you want them to talk to you about, okay? So typically children point and then very likely, uh, you know, especially in the case of a pre-linguistic infant, you know, a child that can't speak yet, they might point, they might vocalize. So the parent or the adult might say something like, oh, yeah, what's that? Oh, yeah, that's a nice bunny. So clearly sort of, you know, it's a prompt to share attention and an opportunity for the adult to elaborate and to provide language context. So there is now a very well-established link between the emergence of gestures and, you know, things like um, reaches and gives and hold out gesture where children are not using the uh, extended index finger, um, but they're just using, you know, uh, the hand and maybe they're offering an object or it's, it's reaching out, but without the pointing. These kind of gestures tend to emerge around 10 months. Uh, while pointing again emerges between 10 and 12 months. And this seems to be fairly universal, okay? So cross-cultural kind of um, uh, schedule. And, and like I said, you know, there is a, a positive predictive relationship between how much children point and gesture, um, you know, these kind of didactic gestures like give out and hold out, uh, and their early vocabulary development. So for example, this is oh. one of the things that we found in, in, in our own study so we measured children's gestures at 10 and 12 months, uh, and then we looked at the vocabulary development uh, at 18 months, and we did find a positive predictor relationship between children that gestured more when they were 10 and 12 months and children that had a larger vocabulary when they were 18 months. Um, oh. Because, you know, like I said, you know, gesture is, is sharing attention, is creating joint attention, which is really what you need for word learning. Uh, and Piggybacking on word learning, of course, you know, learning of bigger chunks, learning of syntax, learning of morphology, and in time, you know, pragmatics and all the fancy things that come with that. Oh, that's so interesting. I have really no idea about child development at all. So this is super interesting. Like I, most of my research is in aging. Um, so when you said 10 months, for example, this was exactly my question. I was like, I don't even know when that should start happening. <laughs> um, so with the, I, with one thing I did think of, like with the pointing, is it universal that it would be like the index finger or? Yes. Yeah. Very much so. Very much so. So oh. it, so what, what changes, like, you know, the differences that have been observed um, cross-culturally, maybe it's in the amount, um, so the frequency of pointing and potentially in, again, in, in uh, some studies have observed uh, cross-cultural and cross-linguistic differences in the amount of contingent talk that the parents provide, um, oh, okay. but not in the, you know, if you like, schedule of pointing coming online. There seems to be pretty well established that it, it, it's 
part and parcel of the kind of, uh, you know, developmental schedule that the children are on. Aside from, like I said, you know, there may be cultural uh, components that might dictate, you know, frequency and extent, but not so much the emergence of uh, pointing gesture. Oh, that's so interesting. Wow. But then how they, and maybe you, you haven't done studies on this, um, but I'm sure you would know if it does exist. But then how, say, are gestures, like the pointing or the reaching, different for a child maybe who's learning a signed language? Like, how are those differentiated? Yeah, it depends. I mean, I suppose I, personally, I haven't done any research on mm. that and I can't off the top of my head think of anything. But what I can tell you is that clearly a child that is exposed to a sign language, you know, the modality is different. And yeah. the children will, will already see things like, you know, diectics in, in sign language. But aside from learning the specific sign, okay, for in, in English, so the pointing is the equivalent of like, if you like, a demonstrative saying that, this, right. okay, mm-hmm. in a way. Um, so don't ask me what the equivalent is in ESL or, you know, la, la lingua italiana dei sordi, I don't know. So, so that's one thing because that's language. But gesture is a different thing, okay? So one thing is sort of sign language, which is, you know, a grammaticalized way of encoding meaning in a different modality, which is not the oral modality. And one thing is gesture. So again, I haven't sort of seen, you know, read anything specific, but my prediction would be that regardless of whether a child is exposed to the oral spoken language um, or sign language, the gesture should come online regardless of that. Mm-hmm. Super interesting. Cool. Yeah, so we touched uh, briefly on children uh, learning a second language, uh, which kind of like leads us to thinking about multilingual children and multilingual families. Uh, in April 2020, during lockdown, you and some of your colleagues launched uh, a survey for multilingual families in the UK and Ireland. Can you tell us a bit more about what inspired this project and what you found so far? Yeah, so it was very much a kind of spur of the moment, you know, uh, enterprise because we're all plunged into this strange social experiment without really wanting to be there. And it just occurred to me that it would have been, you know, an interesting thing to look at how the language using these multilingual families, now that they were locked up together, may or may not change over time. Of course, at the time, we didn't know whether it was going to be a matter of weeks or months in the end. It turned out to be months. And of course, we, we now know, you know, further lockdowns, school interruptions, homeschooling and all that. So for some families, it was a fairly sort of extended period of time. Um, so this is how it all came about, really. Um, and so we set out to um, uh, to create a survey and we put it out there and it was really successful. Surprisingly, maybe people were at home, they didn't know what to do and they decided to do a survey. So we had more than a thousand um, people in the UK and Ireland filling in oh, our wow. survey. It is inevitable when you actually look at the usable data, there is always a little bit less than you hoped because people are in the survey or maybe they're not, you know, they have to be at the time living in the UK or in Ireland. And some of them very enthusiastically did the survey by actually lived in the Philippines. So that really didn't, you know, we couldn't use that kind of data. But anyway, we had more than 700 responses. And one of the things, so my punch, they say like my scientific prediction um, was that if anything was going to change, and really we were interested mostly in, in the, you know, what might happen to, you know, languages other than English, what I'm going to call very broadly the other languages. And, and my, you know, my expectation, my prediction was that, you know, it, it was going to be a few weeks, maybe a few months. So probably likely to be perhaps more of a catalyst for change for younger than for older children. Because say if you're, you know, an 18-year-old and your parents speak to you in Chinese and you always answer back in English, I'd say it's probably unlikely that you start speaking Chinese to them after, you know, a couple of months, right? But if you're a two-year-old and you're in the cusp of, you know, putting sentences, you know, putting words together, you know, coming in with multi-word sentences, maybe you've only just started nursery, and then you're at home with your mum and dad and maybe, I don't know, grandparents or older siblings, and they all speak Chinese to you and you have very little contact with English, then maybe something might change. And this is actually, again, what we found. So we did find that age was a significant predictor of how much, whether, you know, whether there was more language, uh, more of the other languages spoken uh, in the home and by the parents, but also by the children. Okay, so. 
um, we divided um, our children in families that had preschoolers, primary school age children and secondary school age children. And we really saw this effect, you know, in significant terms, uh, statistically only in the preschoolers. Okay. The other thing that we found was also that this effect, you know, another predictor was whether the children were already using that language. It didn't matter how much, but whether they were already using that language when speaking with the parent. So for example, if you know, you got, I don't know, an Italian speaking parent and you normally answer your parent back, I don't know, in Italian, let's say 60% of the time. So not all the time, but you know, some of the time you do. Then during lockdown, probably that 60% went up by, I don't know, 20%. You know, we haven't actually looked at the magnitude, but let's say maybe rather than doing six times up to 10, maybe you were doing it eight times up to 10. Or maybe for some of the children, we actually saw that the, um, the lockdown was really a catalyst and they actually started speaking uh, using the language of the, you know, the parent that was not the societal language, i.e. English, pretty much all the time. Um, so we supplemented the, the survey with um, interviews with 18 families. Again, you know, just because I've re-interviewed them now a year later, also to see whether any changes were maintained over time. And that seemed to be the case with some of the younger children. So for those children for whom lockdown was a catalyst, something there was a qualitative change, if you like, you know, a shift that, that changed the way they interacted with the parents. And for some of these children, it has remained the same but really only for, for the younger children, which again, you know, it's not that surprising, is it? That is so interesting. And uh, I was having a related conversation with some of my multilingual friends who were saying as well that once you establish a conversation with a person speaking in a specific language, it's very hard to speak a different language with them, even if you both share the same set of languages. If you start a relationship with someone speaking English, uh, for example, some of the Italian people that I might meet in the UK, if we just meet and we start speaking English and we keep speaking English, it's very hard that we will ever go back to speaking Italian to each other. Yeah, yeah. So, so it, it, again, sort of you doing that as an adult, but imagine you know, doing mm-hmm. a child, so it's even harder. But Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so so it was really interesting to see that for some of these children, and again, you know, this is anecdotal, it's from one of the um, the interviews, but for one of these children, it's actually an Italian child. Um, and in her case, the catalyst was starting pretend. She was about four, so you know the kind of mm-hmm. game where pretend play really kicks in. And pretend play was the key because she started doing pretend play with her mom, who's the Italian speaker in the family. And because she was so into pretend play, there was a lot more use of Italian. And only mummy could do pretend play; daddy couldn't. So that <laughs> mom really leveraged this, <laughs> combining the Italian with pretend play and that really. And then for some children, another big catalyst and we were talking about literacy earlier was learning to read. Mm-hmm. So some children, again, preschoolers, sort of, you know, around the age of four or just children that had maybe done uh, the reception year, which is between four and five in England. Um, then, you know, they had done a little bit of phonics, I guess, it's, you know, at school before lockdown. And then learning to read in another language, um, which may have an easier, more transparent system than English, because English is a bit of a nightmare, as we all know, uh, learning to read in English. Um, So some parents leveraged that time that they had to also teach their children to read, which, again, you know, for some children, it really opened up, um, you know, a whole new world. Yeah, absolutely. So that experience of homeschooling kind of leads me to my next question, which uh, is what were some some of the biggest struggles uh, faced by multilingual families during COVID? Yeah, I mean, aside from the struggles that all families faced, I mean, you mentioned homeschooling and I guess homeschooling could have gone either ways. okay? because I mean, a lot of the the parents that we surveyed also, again, the, the ones that we interviewed, they said that they were still doing homeschooling in English, just purely because, and we all know, you know, you'll probably do that yourself when you're code switching. A lot of code switching is topic based. So, of course, you know, these children come home from, from school with, I don't know, maths, homework, you know, and the parents just don't have the equivalent in their own language. Okay. Or they think mm-hmm. it might be confusing the child too much if they start talking about phonics in Chinese, right? Um, so homeschooling was done in English for some, I mean, homeschooling, I think was a bit of a nightmare for all parents, but for uh, multilingual families where 
there was, you know, they were maybe sort of leveraging this time to have more of the home language. Then the homeschooling was pulling them in another direction, so to speak, because they were still mm-hmm. English, which they had to do, obviously, for children that were going to school. Another thing which I would say for a lot of families, obviously, because nobody could go anywhere, um, was they really missed the, you know, going to see family in the country of origin or having, you know, grandparents or, or other family members come over to um, to the UK or, or Ireland. So those in-person visits and that in some cases were fairly extended, you know, maybe a few weeks in the summer or during the Christmas holidays. Those were, were really big losses. And I think they, they all acknowledged them. I mean, they were quite creative, these families. So they did, especially with children that could cope with, you know, online. Some of them, you know, had parents, uh, grandparents, you know, or uncles and aunts that were doing, I don't know, hide and seek over FaceTime or WhatsApp or Zoom or playing Scrabble or, you know, doing those kinds of things that maybe before they weren't doing because it was more like of a fleeting video call and so on and so forth. They were trying to get that time back by, by doing this online. Again, the parents were saying that while at the beginning it was all new and exciting, inevitably after a while, and aren't we all tired of you know, being online 24-7? So um, that, you know, some children lost interest in that. And of course, with the younger children, it was more difficult, you know, to engage them. For, for any length of time. But yes, yeah, so I would say the two, yeah, not seeing family was, um, yeah, was, you know, not having the kind of support for those who had the opportunity to travel or have families travel back was, yeah, was a big issue, I would have thought. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And uh, which role does uh, socioeconomic status of the family play or what role did it play during the COVID lockdown? Yeah, so we asked, um, well, one of the, the questions that we, I guess, you know, our proxy for SES was that we asked about um, parental education. Um, uh, so we were kind of trying to be a bit agnostic about the role of, um, you know, whether parents were like the mother or the father. In hindsight, I, so we said parent one, parent two. My hunch and that of my colleagues is that parent one was mom parent to you was dad and that like 95% of the people that filled out the questionnaire were mums. Mm. I'm also saying that because I know from the uh, emails that I was getting. So, you know, to get people, you know, they, I asked them to leave their email if they want to take part in, in a follow-up survey. Yeah. So I'd say, yeah, 95% of the people whose name I, I found out were women. So again, I can't say this hundred percent, but I would say the parent one was mom. So we asked, like I said, you know, about education of parent one and parent two. Uh, and what I can tell you, so we used, the, you know, a parental education uh, as one of the factors uh, in our analysis to see whether it would predict anything. Most of the time, we didn't find that parental education was a significant predictor. Say, for example, you know, the amount of speech or, or literacy activities and such like. What we did ask, um, and this is where we found that um, parents of younger children, so parent one of younger children, so preschoolers, that had a higher level of education, so let's say more educated moms, let's say, with younger children, were more worried about their children's English. Okay, So this group of parents, and like I said, probably mothers that were more educated, where a little because we asked them, are you worried about your, you know, now that your child is not in in, uh, in nursery, are you worried about their level of English? And you know, more educated mothers seem to be more worried about this. Um, another, um, uh, in, and then we also looked at, you know, the the use of English and the other language. The other thing that we found is that families in which parent two, probably dad, uh, was more educated, they had more English. Uh, in the home. So um, families with fathers who were more educated brought in more English. But the families in which there were there was more of the other language, so more Chinese, French, you know, what you name it, where where the parent one, the mother, was more educated. So it seemed that like more educated mothers perhaps were more inclined to transmit, to speak their own language, perhaps, you know, uh, they suffered less from the angst that they should speak English to their child to make sure that they fit in, that they, you know, that they do well at school. So they seem to be more relaxed about speaking their own language. The other question that we had at the end was about well-being uh, and tension, whether, you know, uh, use of the other languages was a source of well-being or a source of tension in the family. 
And levels of well-being, they're generally very high. So we're talking you know, on a scale from zero to 100, they, they were around you know, this 75, 80% mark. So overall, people attributed you know, higher well-being to speaking more of the other language during lockdown. But this effect was more pronounced in families with lower parental education somehow. So they seem to have been, you know, finding that more, even more positive. Like I said, you know, the levels was, were really high overall, but there seemed to be a little bit of um, added value in these families. Maybe like rediscovering something that perhaps they, you know, maybe in normal times they felt they had to maybe push their, English, you know, the children's English more. And maybe when everybody was at home and they were just, you know, more um, of the other language spoken around, they seem to be, you know, benefiting more from that and appreciating that. So we touched on kind of like uh, exchange with uh, family members who maybe were abroad through Zoom. And I was wondering, how do you think that social isolation and social distancing and the absence of freedom of movement during COVID has affected linguistic exchange? And uh, maybe do you think that the fact that it's now so normalized to connect through Zoom to completely other parts of the world would have been able to fill that gap in experience that we've seen for the past year or so? Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting question. So um, like I said, we had this big cohort of people and we were hoping to follow them up um, over the course of a year. Inevitably, you know, the, there is like questionnaire fatigue because also, you know, with people moving online, everything became a questionnaire. So that following people a year after the pandemic wasn't very successful. So because our numbers were much smaller, it really didn't make much sense, you know, when you've got such a small sample at the end to, to say anything very meaningful. So we've decided, but we didn't know what was going to happen. Like I said, you know, we also had like a qualitative arm of the research where we just thought, again, just to make a little bit of work for ourselves with no funding. I said, okay, let's do some interviews. <laughs> that worked out really well. Because, like I said, we've only got 18 families, but they, they you know, they all agreed to be interviewed um, uh, a year later. So, like I said, I think I've only got a couple of families that I've not interviewed yet. But so I know from, you know, qualitatively, and these are families, interestingly, you know, we also have some with preschoolers, some with uh, primary school children, some with secondary school children. Like I said, where we saw the biggest change was with the primary school children. And I have to say, you know, the pandemic affected change at the time. So we saw people, like I said, you know, moving online, trying to do even complementary school moved online. So there were a lot of families that normally would send their children to a Saturday, you know, Greek school or Russian school. And then they were doing some of these things online. Uh, so they tried to fill the gap in that way. And I think it was especially because it was, you know, it was insane, but it was also in a strange way, exciting. I don't know. I don't want to say in a positive way, but, you know, new and yes, something was happening. We were all very much aware that we were in the middle of something momentous, right? So, and then you felt perhaps even more the need to connect with people that were elsewhere, family that was displaced and disconnected and so on. So that I think works really well. What we've seen a year on uh, is that I'm afraid to say, and I think this is probably true of many other different areas, including, I don't know, sustainability, environmental change, travel, and all that, we have reverted to pre-pandemic levels, right? So, you know, inevitably going back to school again, um, school clearly sort of the minute, you know, children start going to school, peers become a lot more important, children that don't have, families that don't have like a big, support network of other children that also speak the other language, but inevitably a lot of the time these children speak English to each other anyway. So that, and a lot of these families haven't had the opportunity because even this summer when people could travel a little bit more, a lot of the families that I spoke to didn't go anywhere and their relatives didn't come. So they still got the, you know, the opportunity to go to, I don't know, Greece or Pakistan or wherever hasn't really materialized for some of them. So I have to say, for some children, I have to, again, qualitative interview, so um, I don't want to generalize, but one of the patterns that we see is for those children that had the, you know, momentous qualitative switch of starting to use the language that they didn't before, that seems to have remained. Uh, and then again, for children that started reading, this is something that perhaps not as maybe as much reading as they were doing at the beginning, but it's a tool in their arsenal now, so they can use it and they do use it. 
again, you kind of never know what would that have happened if we hadn't had the pandemic. So in a way, you kind of never know. But certainly it wasn't happening before. And then it happened during lockdown and it remained a little bit. So, you know, this is clearly not a, uh, an intervention study. Uh, you know, it's not a random, you know, an RCT. <laughs> um, but, um, but yeah, so what we can, you know, we can see at least from a, a qualitative point of view, the kind of patterns have emerged that, you know, some things have changed and have remained, but most things have reverted to pre-pandemic level. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, and just to say for our listeners who might not know, RCT is randomized control trial, which is a study design that's thought to be sort of the gold standard when you're looking at intervention studies and things. But yes. Yeah, which of course this isn't because we would need a world where there wasn't a pandemic that you could then have as your control group. And that's not possible. <laughs> it's not possible. No. Not possible. But we wish we had a world without a pandemic. I know, right? We could all just go there then. <laughs> So a question that I have um, similar to that, where sort of was just defining RCT for some of our listeners who maybe aren't too familiar with linguistics, but are quite interested in languages and things. How would you describe or define, you've mentioned some words like syntax and phonology and pragmatics. Could you give us a quick sort of overview of what those things are and what they, they mean? Um, yes. Certainly. So clearly sort of language is multifaceted, the many aspects. And uh, as is the case for, say, for example, I don't know if you're doing chemistry, you can do organic chemistry or inorganic chemistry. A linguist is not just a linguist. I can be, you know, a phonetician, a phonologist, a synthetician, a psycholinguist. So depending on the kind of branch of linguistics that you decide to specialize in. So, for example, if you're a synthetician, you're interested in the study of syntax. And syntax is really about structure of language okay so the the most obvious thing is like word order okay so we were maybe mentioning earlier a little bit that language is different in the way in which they order words this is one of the many ways in which they do for example in italian you normally use an adjective like a a color name for example after a noun so you say something like cane nero in english you have to flip it round. so the adjective black must precede the noun dog so black dog and not dot black, okay? So syntax is very broadly speaking, the study of sentence structure, okay? How words are put together in a way that makes sense. Um, I mentioned phonology, so clearly sort of looking at sound systems, um, the way in which sounds of the languages are systematically arranged. Uh, and then again, you know, clearly sort of there are lots of cross-linguistic differences for syntax, but of course, for phonology, this is perhaps one of the most obvious things that strikes everybody. Even if you understand nothing about the language, you understand nothing about word order, you, you can tell whether somebody is speaking your language or not, right, obviously. So even just by hearing uh, what they're saying. Pragmatics, which is an area that I'm very interested in, is really the study of language use, so language in context, okay? So the kind of things that you do with language. So studying, for example, um, turn-taking. And that's meaningful, right? Sort of when is it you, how do you know when it's your t- turn to speak? So for example, if I've asked you a question and I've got this kind of rising intonation uh, and then you know that you're expected to say something after that. So it's odd if you don't, right? Or I've worked a lot on reference. So um, so we, we've got uh, linguistic expressions in, in languages that help you to identify you know, entities in the real world. And by entities, I mean people, objects, okay? So, so we've got things like names. So we've got Brittany and Victoria, and they identify you in the world. But we've also got common nouns, say the student, the broadcaster, the interviewer. Okay, so these are all potentially uh, nominal expressions that, could, that I could use, you know, to identify you. And then you've got, what this is what I've worked on a lot, and it seems like, Strange maybe to devote a lot of one's career to very small work, but pronouns, okay? So things like he and she, you know, by themselves, they don't mean anything, right? If I say Brittany, it means something, right? I can immediately identify you. But if I say she, you know, I said like, you know, I was speaking earlier to Brittany and Victoria, and she said she doesn't mean anything in its own. So you have to try and find an antecedent, i.e. something that comes before in discourse, that you must connect this little pronoun, she, to understand whether I'm speaking about Brittany or Victoria, for example, right? So, and there may be some previous, other previous cues 
that might disambiguate. So pronouns are also a way in which you, um, uh, you know, that you use to make, you know, language in use, okay? So things like that. What else do you know? Oh, psycholinguistics. So um, this is also something that, that I've been doing. So it's the study, as you would you know, as it says in the name, of uh, linguistic behavior, but also the psychological variables that are associated with linguistic behavior. So for example, you know, to speak, to understand language, to produce language, you need things like memory, right? Uh, you need attention. So clearly sort of I need, you know, you, you're listening to a sentence and, you know, you have to get to the sentence to, to try and understand what I've meant. But you can't understand what I've meant if you don't remember what I said maybe two sentences ago, or three sentences ago, or even in the beginning of the sentence, okay? Um, you also have to pay attention because if you don't, clearly again, you know, you may be hearing something, but you're not really processing at a deeper level. Um, so these are all aspects of a language development. So it's also a branch, if you like, of uh, psycholinguistics that studies how children and adults, when it, in the case of their second, third or fourth language, come to learn a new form meaning mapping. Because in the end of the day, that's what you're doing when you're learning a new language. You've got a meaning. You need to express that meaning using a different language form, a different linguistic form. So. So, so these are some of the, the terms that, that might have, uh, you know, perhaps sort of puzzled some of your listeners or maybe not. Maybe they're like uh, faithful uh, followers of your podcast and they know <laughs> everything already about, about linguistics. Thank you so much for that overview. That was entirely expert. That was incredible. Like I have an undergraduate degree in linguistics and that quick sort of three or four minute overview was probably cleaner than some of the things I've learned in classes. So, so thank you. <laughs> linguistics. <laughs> So I have a quick question um, from something that you just mentioned. So your interest in pronouns, that's really, really interesting. But something I was thinking of, so I come from a more cognitive perspective. How do you conduct research into that? Like what sort of experiments or how do you actually measure how that works looking at the sort of pronoun reference situation? Mm -hmm. uh, well, you can do it in many different ways. So there are some techniques. So normally you would very broadly distinguish between what we call offline techniques and online techniques. So offline techniques are um, tasks where you are, for example, sentence comprehension. You know, you listen to a sentence and then you're asked a question and you have, you know, if you have not understood the sentence, you could not answer the question correctly. For example, like when you say something, Brittany saw Victoria uh, at uni and she asked her whatever, okay? So... Again, this is quite an ambiguous use of the pronoun, but I say, who asked the, the question? You can say, like, you can make hypotheses of whether it was written or whether it was written. So normally, you know, I would give you a sentence and then I can ask you, basically, who does she identify? Who does it refer to? Very right. Uh, in the case of younger children, you know, they can point to a picture. Okay, so they make ah. a sentence and they say, oh, can you point? Um, who did whatever, and they can point to one or the other picture. You normally give them two choices, okay, to make things easier. And that, you know, if you've got somebody who is, who can read, so either, you know, a child who learned to read or a second language learner, you can ask them, you could use, for example, a self-paced reading uh, experiment. So when normally people see chunks of text appear on, on a computer screen and they press the space bar to go to the next uh, bit of the sentence, and what you do, you measure how long it takes them to read a chunk. And normally, the longer it takes them to read, you know, a critical region, a critical chunk, it means that they've got processing difficulties. It means that they've encountered something that they find hard to process, maybe because it's unexpected, maybe because it's ambiguous. Okay, so you can measure that kind of time. In reading, you can do aisle tracking while reading. Again, similar things if you're interested in pronouns, you know, you've got a sentences, you're tracking eye movements while people read. And when people read, you know, of course you go from one word to the next, but you also regress. You also go back, okay, to previously read words. So again, there are various um, measures that you can take in reading, like, you know, how long you're fixating a certain word, how many times you're going back to previous words that also give you a sense of whether that pronoun that, you know, I'm interested in was difficult for you, whether you found it surprising or whether you find it okay, you know, so whether it fitted in with your understanding of the sentence. Another thing you can do, and then probably stop because this is more than you wanted to hear, 
is, again, with children who cannot read, you can still do online measures. For example, rather than doing aisle tracking while reading, you can do you can use what we call the visual world paradigm. So they see a picture uh, and they hear a sentence. Okay, so you can the idea is that what you look you know you hear a sentence and you try to map what you hear on what you can see. Okay, so for example, if I've got a picture of Brittany and a picture of Victoria, uh, when I hear you know I say Brittany when you know said hello to Victoria. So when they hear Brittany, they will look at you. When they hear Victoria, they will look at you. And then she, and then this is the critical, you know, who will they look at when they hear she? Will they look at the probably the first mention reference, i.e. Brittany, um, you know, the one that is more salient? You know, there are obviously lots of hypotheses you can formulate, but even when the pronoun is ambiguous, there are hunches that people have of what the uh, identity of the referent is, but that's what you could do. So even children who cannot read, you can still take these online measures. And again, you're measuring how long they fixate, how quickly they fixate on the, you know, the referent of interest, for example, in the case of pronoun. Fantastic. Thank you so much for clarifying that. I think neither of us uh, works in this area, so it's fascinating for us to hear as well. Well, last question today, uh, what projects do you have lined up for the future and what are some areas that you think you'd be interested in pursuing for future research? Okay, so I can tell you some of the things that I'm doing at the moment that will go on for a few years. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. At the moment, so I'm doing various different things. One is, again, as you will know, I work on with bilingual, multilingual children. And, and one of the, the big issues is also is the, you know, who is bilingual, right? How bilingual are you? What does being bilingual even mean? And we could have a whole different podcast just in this. It's true. Um, <laughs> but one of the ways in which people have tried out, you know, tried to figure out how bilingual someone is, is through questionnaires, through asking people. Uh, so in the case of young children, obviously you don't ask a three-year-old, but you ask their parents, okay? So you're asking about their language history. And there are lots of questionnaires around that ask a lot of different questions. So, um, but now there's been this proliferation of questionnaires and it seems like pretty much everybody who does a study on bilinguals creates their own questionnaire. And we don't know which kind of questions are going to be really predictive, whether the way in which we ask these questions makes a difference. So to cut a long story short, we've come together with some colleagues um, at the University of Leeds uh, in the Netherlands and in France to to do a large consensus study. So we brought together uh, lots of researchers, but also lots of teachers, lots of speech and language therapists to see if we could reach a consensus on what questions we really need to ask about the bilingual language experience and uh, how. And now, so we've now got this questionnaire that we are now piloting to see how predictive it is. Uh, another thing that I'm doing is uh, looking at um, cross-linguistic influence that we haven't talked much about today, but basically if you're a bilingual speaker, uh, I know Victoria is a bilingual speaker, I'm not sure about Brittany. Um, when you said the, how do you quantify a bilingual? I know some languages, but I wouldn't say that I'm proficient enough to like, for example, have a podcast conversation and then either of the other ones that I have knowledge of. So I would quantify myself on the lower end of that. <laughs> the lower end of the spectrum. Yeah. Uh, maybe I'm thinking there was somebody like Victoria, who I'm guessing is probably used, you know, English and Italian pretty much yes. every day in her, in her life. So inevitably, you know, the way clearly sort of if you're a first, Italian was your first language, it probably affected your English. But now you probably come to the state that English is affecting your, your first language. Oh, absolutely. Massively. Yes. Massively. <laughs> so we can do another podcast on crossing with Anyway, so this is something that we're doing with Polish-English bilingual children in the UK. And of course, Polish is uh, a really big language, you know, other language in schools, uh, in England at least. And we're looking at this technique called uh, syntactic priming, where you're basically modeling a sentence structure to see whether you can prime, whether you can bias the use of that structure uh, when the, the participant has to, it's a, it's a picture description game, when they have to describe their own picture. And the interesting mm-hmm. thing is that we're doing this across languages. So uh, in one part of, you know, in, in all of the experiments are bi-directional. So sometimes they hear the prime sentence in Polish and they have to answer in English. And sometimes it's the other way around. So we want to see how English affects Polish and how Polish affects English. And I'm not going to go into the details of the kind of structures that we're looking at, but basically that's what we're doing. Uh, another thing, again, with the my colleague, Thea Cameron Faulkner, that we worked on, you know, the gesture. So we're mm-hmm. now about to start a project that is looking at the language 
uh, in literacy environment of Chinese families um, based in Manchester. So we're looking at you know the kind of uh, emergent literacy activities that they may be doing, also clearly in languages like Mandarin and Cantonese that have got very different um, writing system. Uh, and then with some colleagues at the University of Tromsø in Norway, we're looking again at this uh, issue of cross-linguistic influence, and we're comparing a lot of bilinguals. Again, in the field, again, there is, thank God, a move away from, from comparing bilinguals to monolinguals, but mm -hmm. more like comparing different groups of bilinguals uh, where maybe you're keeping one language contact, constant and you change the other language to see really what the you know, what might be happening, because, of course, bilinguals are always going to be different from monolinguals. So that's kind of almost uninteresting. But it's, you know, but it may be more interesting to compare different bilinguals with different types of language combinations. And we're looking at, you know, this, at this point in time at possessive constructions, which are fascinating because, um, you know, the way in which languages work when it comes to a possessor or the things possessed, the kind of patterns really change a lot. For example, mm -hmm. the English are very different. And um, and we've got lots of different language combinations. In the future, I think I would like to go back to doing more. So, and then I've uh, been doing things on inferencing. So what is it that allows you to understand the text, right? So how can you make a, a lot of what we hear is literal information. So you're told, you're given facts, information. But also there is a lot that we need to guess. You know, we, may, we need to make an informed guess about something that is not explicitly stated, but is inferred, right? So, and this is really hard for children. So, for example, uh, pronouns are an example in case hmm. they're an inference, right? She, he doesn't mean anything. You have to make a guess, informed guess, about the, the reference of he and she, depending on what you've learned before. So I've done some work on, on English only uh, with my colleague Alessandra Valentini here at Reading on inferencing in narratives. But I'd like to go back to this and really unpack sort of different types of references, but also going back to doing this bi-directionally and looking at cross-linguistic influence, hopefully with English-Italian bilingual children, because I've not worked on Italian for so long. And, uh, and it'd be really good to, to go back and do some, some work on that, my own first language as well. That is so interesting. And um, I've, yeah, I have uh, a lot of interest in this area as well, because I've, I've worked with bilingual children. And I've done something similar on the cross linguistic influence in uh, phonetics uh, for my master's dissertation. So that's really interesting. Yeah. Let's talk more then. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. Um, thank you so much for your time today as well. I think. We could continue talking for many hours, but for the sake of everyone's time, we won't. <laughs> um, but thank you so much for joining us today. Um, we hope you enjoyed it and that you learned some cool things or at least some thought-provoking information. I know I certainly did. A special thanks to Professor Ludovica Seratrice for her time and for sharing her expertise and experiences with us. If you're interested in learning more about her and her wonderful work, you can find links on our website and in the episode description. On our website, you can also leave us a review and let us know what you think and send us any questions uh, that you might like us to answer. Tune in next time to keep learning about how languages shape us and the environment around us. As always, stay safe, stay healthy, and... Ciao, alla prossima. Au revoir. Adios.